Now I've interviewed more than 600 people. I always start off the podcast by saying hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. And that's the whole point of the show is to help particularly young people learn from the stories of their elders and learn about their losses so that they don't have to make those losses. Welcome to Talking Billions. We talk about big ideas, big inspirations, big topics. We take on the hardest subject of all, money. How to make it, save it, keep it. But our conversations lead us to an even bigger question. What it means to live a rich life beyond money. My guests share their practices, principles, and evergreen wisdom. I'm your host, Bogumil Baranowski, author, TEDx speaker, investor, and a founding partner of Seacard Associates, a boutique investment firm founded in New York City. Join me on this quest to unearth the wisdom of the ages. My guests today are Andrew Stotz and Alex Vetterling. Andrew Stotz is on a mission to reduce risk in the lives of millions, which he does through his My Worst Investment Ever podcast. He is co-founder and CEO of A. Stotz Investment Research, A. Stotz Academy, and a co-founder of Coffee Works. During his career in finance, Andrew served two terms as president of CFA Society Thailand and was twice voted number one financial analyst in Thailand. He has been teaching since 1992 and created six online courses, including the Valuation Masterclass. He has written five books and holds a PhD in finance. He lives with his 83-year-old mother and has been in Thailand for nearly 30 years. Alex Vetterling is an investment professional taking a particular interest in investor behavior and decision-making. He's a founding partner of Ace Stotts Investment Research and Ace Stotts Academy and a co-founder of the Valuation Masterclass. Alex holds a Master of Science in Financial Economics from the School of Business, Economics and Law at the University of Gothenburg, Sweden. We talk about Andrew's podcast, My Worst Investment Ever, Alex's experience growing up in Sweden, how to become a better investor, the challenges and opportunities of ESG investing, as in environmental, social, and corporate governance investing. What can North American and European investors learn from Asia? Please help me welcome Andrew and Alex. Hi, hello, how are you? Nice to see you both. Greetings from beautiful Bangkok, Thailand. Great to be here. Wonderful. Well, let's jump right in. I want to hear all about it. Why investing? Question for both of you. Out of all careers that you could have chosen, you chose investing. Why Why investing? Maybe, maybe I'll start with that and uh, say that I studied undergrad in finance, and then I went to work for Pepsi in Los Angeles. And I was just stumbling around, wasn't really sure what to do. And I figured that I didn't want to work in manufacturing forever. And I had a bug to go live in Asia. So I packed up and took a job as a lecturer at a university in finance. And so that was when I arrived in Thailand in 1992 to teach finance. I mean, I had no idea what I was doing at all. I I never worked in finance. I just had textbooks and I just put my head down and tried to figure out how the heck am I going to teach these students? And so that was the beginning for me. And then soon I found that I wasn't going to make much money being a teacher in Thailand. And so after a year, I got a job as an analyst at a local Thai broker that was later closed down in the 1997 crisis. But 
that was the beginning. And when I found the job, I always say when I found that job of being an analyst at the time, I was roughly 28 years old. And it's like, this is for me. And I built a whole life around being an analyst, which to me is a very rare and interesting job. So maybe that, that kind of, that's the short version for me. Maybe Alex, you want to explain your journey? Yeah, so I think, I mean, for me, it probably started as a kid, always being curious. And as kids do, they always have the question why. And I guess I never really grew up from that. So I just continued. Also, when I was maybe 12, 13 or something, I was interested in politics. And then after a while in politics, I just realized that you don't do much difference here. And started to feel like business and economics. It was more interesting and you could make more of a difference. Then I ended up going to an economics university. And during my final year of the bachelor degree, I did my exchange in Thailand. And that's how I got to know Andrew. So I basically had him as a professor in my equity valuation class. And I felt like from day one, this is a guy I want to work with. So during that semester, I think I managed to convince him to offer me an internship. And that's what happened. And uh, at the end of that internship, we started working together with the business we're having now. It sounds like it was meant to be. Oh, yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> Tell me about your upbringing and childhood and how do you think that influenced your relationship with money? You know, I came from, I would say, upper middle class, though I didn't necessarily feel like, like we had that much money. But in my family, we didn't talk about money. And it wasn't that money was taboo or it was bad. It was kind of neutral. Like we just didn't know much, you know. And that was the way it was. So I didn't really have a lot of awareness. And I didn't have any particular interest at the time when I was growing up. And then I just can remember getting into university and then starting to study and feeling like accounting was a bit boring for me. And then I had the impression that marketing and other courses like that were pretty simple, like they were just, you know, learn personalities and, you know, figure out how to work with people. So I felt like finance was the thing that maybe I ought to try that. And so that's how I got started in finance. And when I started to kind of study deeper, I really started just enjoying it and seeing all of what there is to learn. And then, as I say, I started teaching when I was 28. And now I'm getting close to 58. So I've had 30 years of teaching and as well as working. And I would just say that every single year, every single day, every single month, I just keep learning more. And for me, once I got on that train to learn in finance, I just, it just, it just got me absolutely hooked. And to this day, I still want to learn more. <laughs> I see the thousand books behind you. So that, that really <laughs> gives it away. Definitely. Alex? I think for me, I grew up with my parents and we had or had what you need. It's not like it was tough or anything, but I still didn't go on the shorter holidays every year or basically ever, but had what we needed. And I also think both my parents, they are quite the opposite in the view on how they look at money. So my mom is a bit more like, what's the point of accumulating money? Because you might be sick or dead tomorrow. So let's enjoy life. While my dad is very risk averse, and I would also say quite spending averse. So hopefully from that upbringing, I've gotten some kind of middle way. I like to put aside money and invest every month. But at the same time, I also 
like to go out, have fun, travel, and stuff like that. So the part of enjoying things, probably I learned from my mom. When I look at investing, I typically start with what is the worst case scenario? What can go wrong? How much am I putting at risk? And that's where I start. And then if I realize that, yeah, I can accept that, and then I could potentially make some return, then I would go with it. So I guess that's from my dad's side. It's funny, and I share this story more than once, that the first conversation that I had with my future boss and now business partner, Francois Sicard, when we sat down, I had all the questions for him. How can I avoid losing money? And we're talking about all kinds of frauds, about the bubbles. And I think it was very refreshing for him to see a kid who wants to go into investing with that kind of mindset instead of how can I get rich quickly? And that never really left me. I still look at things the same way. If I can figure out all the ways that I can lose money and avoid it, the upside will take care of itself. And that's, that's how I think of it. And obviously, there'll be surprises and things will come up that I never thought of. But I want to give it a fair chance to figure out all the possible ways first. Let's talk about your firm. And your firm has some parallels with our firm. You decided to, to break away, become independent, become smaller, a boutique operation. Can you talk about the lessons and advantages of being smaller in the investment world? The firm that we set up, Ace Dots Investment Research, started from the idea that I was producing a lot of research for investors around the world and enjoying it quite a bit. So I felt like if I left my job, I could continue to produce that research and get paid for it. But I learned pretty quickly that investors at big fund management houses were reluctant to pay for stock-specific research because they are getting that. Technically, they may consider it to be free from brokers. So I quickly shifted to more towards managing money and applying the skills that I had developed over the years to invest and set up portfolios for clients. And so that's really what we've been doing for a while now. And I just love being a small and independent house because we can do, we can turn on a dime. And if we see opportunities, we can move into that opportunity. And so that's something that I've really enjoyed. And I work with the people that I want to work with and I'm doing what I love to do. So it's kind of a dream life. And I'm living in the country that I want to live in, which is Thailand. So really, I live a dream life. Wonderful. Alex, your two favorite topics are investor behavior and challenges with ESG investing. And so if we start with the investor behavior part, um, you talked a little bit about before you, you know, excited about bubbles and trying to understand those. And that's something I always also thought about, especially when you talk about efficient markets, etc., so how can you have booms and busts and so on? And another part that got me curious was that when it comes to investing, basically the knowledge is available. So pretty much everyone can get the knowledge how to become wealthy. In simple terms, you put aside 10 to 20% of your income every month, put it into global equity ETF for a 60-40 portfolio, whatever feels good for you, and do that for 30 years and then you're going to be wealthy. Still very few people do that. I mean, including myself, I probably didn't start to seriously until I was 30 or something like that. And financial models or economic models, it, it doesn't really explain how this can happen because it shouldn't happen according to them. But as soon as you consider the behavioral aspects, then you all of a sudden can start making models or assumptions or explanations 
that start to make more sense. In the case of investing, we're dealing with uncertainty. And I think humans in general are just very averse to uncertainty. We definitely, we want to know things for sure. Better to have had it today than wait until next week or next month or next year. So by understanding our biases and our urge for that instant gratification, I think that's quite humbling. And if you do understand yourself and your shortcomings, you can also deal with them. And I think a lot about investing is ultimately to manage yourself, manage your own behavior and don't make rush decisions. I think if I don't remember wrong, Bogomel, in your book, that you also talk about the Shetlit Manifesto. It's a great book. Great book. <laughs> it is indeed. And I, I was just recently also used to it by Andrew, actually. Checklist mm. is one way to deal with your biases and make sure that you have a rational investment process. And another thing which is similar to checklists is frameworks. And that's something I learned working with Andrew and something we're doing with everything in our business. We develop frameworks because that forces us to be disciplined and to really go through each decision in a way so we can feel confident that at least we made the best we could. That's, that's what you provide. Alex, ESG, what a topic. It has little bit to do with my interest for behavior as well, because I'm interested in what motivates certain behavior or how we can change behavior. And to some extent, that's what you want to do with ESG. It's hard to evaluate companies on ESG, especially when it comes to that environmental and social impact. So if we would go with an example, most people probably agree that tobacco is not a great thing and so on. But let's ask ourselves, should we, add, should we include Coca-Cola in an ESG portfolio? First of all, if we ask things from a social perspective, sugary drinks is probably not great for our health. We have an obesity epidemic and I'm quite sure and that sugary drinks worsens that. I don't say it causes it, but definitely worsens it. Then, you know, what's the social impact? And then given that Andrew and I are in Thailand, so let's also look at if you're using a sugar that is produced in Thailand, you're probably also contributing to air pollution because most people here growing sugar canes and so on, they burn their crop and that makes air pollution all over the country. Mm -hmm. So what's the environmental impact from that? I'm not trying to bash on Coca-Cola or soda company. I just want to highlight how hard it can be to evaluate the impact of the company. And yeah, and I, I also think that part of the ESG thing, it also comes down to whose responsibility is it? So is it the government's responsibility to regulate? Should I put excise taxes on sugar? Or is it simply it's up to the consumer? And I also think that is somewhat the issue at heart with ESG, that it is about your values and we don't have the same values. So even though ESG promoters and the current ESG fund, they try to push one set of values on everyone, that's not the case. We have different values. And I think ultimately you as an investor or as a person, you're responsible for making investments or decisions that is according to your values. And let's say you don't want to spend all your time on investing, then at least find a manager where your values are aligned and then make sure that, you know, it's up to whatever values you support. I like the idea of voting with your money, both as an investor and a consumer. The challenge is to be 
properly informed. And that's, I think, the hardest thing that you know all that you probably should know or want to know to make the informed decision, both as an investor and a consumer. So I'm definitely hopeful that in the future, we'll just have more access to information all the way down, down the road, not just buying the product, but knowing where the suppliers are, how things are sourced, what kind of impacts are happening. But as you said, it's not a single score. It's a very complicated world to explain and to follow and to say, this is good, this is bad. I think it's, it's a little bit more complicated. Andrew, I want to talk about your podcast. I love the title, My Worst Investment Ever. Where did the idea come from? What have you learned in the process? Any highlights you want to share? My Worst Investment Ever podcast was an idea I came up with when I was walking at the park. I had listened to a podcast called My Worst Interview Ever, and I heard people like John Lee Dumas and other famous people get on there and talk about their worst interview. Maybe the guy or man or woman they were interviewed was drunk, or maybe they got in a fight or whatever. But in the end, they shared these stories. And I thought that's interesting that big name people would share those types of stories. And so I sent an email to the guy who was running that podcast and said, would you mind if I switch out the word worst interview ever with worst investment ever? I never heard back from him, but I decided why not just start? And so I sent out an email to 500, uh, well, to a list of people that I knew and 500 of them sent me back a story of their worst investment ever. And when they did, I realized that I had a topic that was interesting. Now I've interviewed more than um, 600 people. I always start off the podcast by saying, hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. And that's the whole point of the show is to help particularly young people learn from the stories of their elders and learn about their losses so that they don't have to make those losses. Now, I did have some common themes that I came across and I call them six common mistakes. I'll run to them really quickly. The first one and most common, number one is most common, is fail to do their research. Most people, when they're losing money, they don't do the research necessary and they jump into something way, way too fast. So to avoid this mistake, do your research. The second one is fail to properly assess and manage risk. I like to say assess risk is kind of before you get into the position and manage risk is once you're in the position and things go wrong. And most people don't have any preparation for this. Now, I'll tell you a story of an experience I had with my business partner, which will give you some idea about how we can improve our research on return and risk. For my coffee business, Coffee Works here, our factory in Thailand, we had an opportunity to expand to Vietnam. So my business partner, Dale, went to Vietnam, investigated everything, talked to the partners, looked at the opportunity, and we agreed that after a couple of months of running numbers, he would present that information to me. So I went to the office, we sat down, and he did a great presentation about what are the opportunities, what's the upside. And once he got through that, I had a lot of questions, and so we went through all of the upside potential here in Vietnam. And once he did that, then we went out for dinner and relaxed and had a nice relaxing evening. And then a week later, we met a second time. And the second time that we met, we talked about risks. And we went through all the different risks associated with this opportunity relative to the return that we were expecting to get. And what we decided in the end was it was better to allocate our capital to expanding in Thailand than to expand to Vietnam. 
We had a lot of potential still in Thailand and the risk of the deployment of that capital was very low compared to having to bring that capital into another country and a whole different environment. So my advice is to separate your research on return and risk to take some of the emotion out of it, which brings me to point number three, driven by emotion or flawed thinking. Most people, when they make their worst investment ever are caught up in emotion, maybe fear of missing out or many other emotions that they're feeling. And also there's flawed thinking in the way that they're analyzing and thinking about things. And so in this case, what I would say is a good way to counter that is talk to a third party who's not involved in it and that you trust and talk to them about what it is that your idea is and try to get some feedback and listen to the feedback. That's the key part. Number four is misplaced trust. You find that people who are really tough in their business, they'll negotiate down to every penny, but yet some stranger calls them up with a seductive story and next thing they're transferring $10,000, $20,000 to that stranger. So make sure that you trust the person that you're about to invest with and trust takes time. Number five, fail to monitor their investment. Basically, there's a lot of people who just put money into something and hope that it comes back, such as, let's say, investing in a, a restaurant. And they hope that their cousin is going to bring that money back. But in fact, you've got to follow up and monitor your investment on a regular basis, which brings me now to number six, which is kind of a catch-all. And it is invested in a startup company. <laughs> a lot of people lost a lot of money from investing in startup companies. And basically what I like to say is the way to think about startup companies is it's likely you're going to lose all your money and it's a binary thing. It's not something where, well, I may get 5% return or I may get 500% return. No, you're either going to get zero or 500. But I would also mention, and this is an important thing is that really for an outside investor, you don't really get a return unless you sell your position in that company, except through dividend. So I always try to advise people to, when they invest in a startup, do two things. Number one, ask the founder or the person that you're giving the money to, to meet you once a, once a month. And let's say the third Monday of the month, do a video call and connect and review the financials from the prior month. And the second thing is try to understand when this company is going to get to dividends, because ultimately dividends are the way that outside investors can get money out of a company. I also think, yes, to go back to the title of the podcast and yes, the idea behind it, why I really loved it when Andrew proposed it. And it is my worst investment is you inverse, like Charlie Munger says, always inverse. And that's also something we do otherwise with our research as well. When you do evaluation of a business, you look at the revenue drivers and so on. And there we have a framework developed where we look at the constraints to growth instead of yes, focusing on what can go right and how do we come up with amazing revenue forecast? Like what is it that constrain it? And by thinking of that, you typically understand better how the business works, but also potential risks involved or if there is potential limitation. There are so many books about successes and so many articles. Everybody wants to celebrate and, and brag about successes. I, I think it's very refreshing to take a step back and look at the failures because we can learn so much from it. And it seems to be the theme in our conversation here. I want to talk about becoming a better investor, Andrew. It's a very competitive field and it's probably more competitive now than ever. There are definitely more participants and everybody feels like they could be a part of this pursuit. What makes somebody a better investor apart from the things that you just mentioned? 
the idea of the competitiveness of investing and trying to become a better investor is such a fascinating topic. I've read pretty much every book I can possibly read on the topic and enjoy it very much and observe myself as well as investors in our community, which is called a become a, become a better investor community. And I would say that majority of what it takes to become a better investor is to understand your emotions and try to figure out a way to not let your emotions take over. That's difficult. Now we do that through frameworks. We set up a framework called FVMR, Fundamentals, Valuation, Momentum, and Risk. We look at these four factors for every stock or every investment, every fund, and every ETF as an example. And we try to assess those four factors for every company that we're considering. That's the first thing. The second thing is that we revisit our portfolios every quarter. In between quarters, we generally don't make any changes unless there's some kind of emergency situation that we may need to consider. Uh, we did have a case where a particular investment vehicle that we were investing in appeared like it could be collapsing. And so we looked at it and decided to get the money out, which we did in between the three-month period. But generally, part of what I try to do is talk about a framework. And that's a key thing that I think can help become a better investor. It's hard to compete on becoming better at valuing companies, as an example. Uh, the second thing that I would say, uh, the last thing on this topic is the idea that ultimately take a lesson from Warren Buffett. He's had his money in the market for almost 70 years. The, the data he shows on his website goes back to 1965. And so you've got to figure out a way to stay invested in the market for a long, long time. People go into investing with very inflated expectations. I keep thinking about what's sustainable. If somebody wants to say, I want to double my money every month, it's not possible. But if you can have a very respectable rate of return over a very long period of time, the money will grow. Compounding will take care of itself here. But that's something that some people get, some people miss it. But I think that's really the idea. Lifelong pursuit, respectable returns, and you'll do just fine. Alex, I have to ask you this. Sweden and the socialist experience. I share in my book, my experience with communism in Poland in the 1980s, in my book, Money, Life, Family. Some people in America have a very idealized image of socialism or social democracy. You tell me what's the right name to call it. But what's it really like? First, to reconnect what we talked about right now about luck. I was lucky to be born in Sweden in one way. It's a rich country and uh, I'm a product of free education. So that's actually something the social democracy have done, I think, really well. I think free education is a great way to give people some equality of opportunities. But the problem with all socialist systems, whether it's communists or social democrats, is that they focus on equality of outcomes instead. And the problem is, yes, we're not all the same. We don't want the same things. So already on the ID stage, it fails. And while Sweden has been good at lifting up people at the lower levels of society, it's also a system that holds you back. If you want to stand out, do something that is too different or that you try to become too successful. 
there's this uh, Swedish word called lagom, which is like the exact right amount. It's not too much. It's not too little. It's just the exact right amount. And I don't think there's anything wrong about trying to find balance, but you shouldn't find it just for the sake of it. Another part in Sweden, if you look at freedom of speech, growing up or even now, I wouldn't say that you're not free to say what you want or that there's massive censorship or anything like that. But there's a lot of self-censorship. So if you're, for example, not politically correct in your views and you're a public person, you're going to get ripped apart by the media and you're going to get deplatformed. Things like we've seen pretty much everywhere in the West now in recent years. But at the same time, growing up in Sweden, I know it's always been a consensus culture. And maybe that's one of the recipes or things you need in a socialist society. And then the last thing, which I think is probably the biggest issue with socialist systems or social democratic like it is in Sweden, is that it basically takes away individual responsibility and replaces it with government. It makes people unable to take care of themselves and make their own decisions. They just sit there and wait for someone else to come and sort it out for them or for the government to step in and say, okay, we'll take care of this for you. And that's, I think, the biggest issue. In summary, I cannot complain about having been born and grown up in Sweden. I got a lot of opportunities from it. At the same time, I think if it had been a more capitalist society, I think it would have been even better. I hear you. I had a professor, a political science professor, who said, you can always vote with your feet. We talked about voting with money, but you, you guys voted with your feet. You, neither of you are in the country where you were born, which leads me to the next question. We have clients that are from the US and Europe and Asia, and we've worked with people from, from three continents at least. Between the two of you, you touched all three continents because of the places where you were born, and now you work in Asia for, in case of you, Andrew, for decades. What do you think you can learn or teach from this experience back to American and European investors? I've been in Asia for 30 years of my life, which is longer than I lived in the U.S. And there's a few things that I would say about what we can learn about the Asian experience that I've had. The first thing is in 1997, we had the Asian financial crisis, which the epicenter of that was here in Bangkok, Thailand. And it was a brutal, brutal time. The GDP of Thailand collapsed in 1998 by 11%. I was out of my job pretty quickly. And also my coffee factory, basically almost all of our customers disappeared. And Dale and I decided we better move into the factory. And so we lived in our factory on the outskirts of Bangkok in kind of a jungle area to try to batten down the hatches to survive that time. It was seared into all of our memories. Why is this an important story? Well, because most companies in Thailand have been through this situation. And for these companies, they have some institutional memory of what happened. And that memory has prevented them from getting overextended at, in debt on a corporate level. And so I would say companies are much more conservative. I wanted to tell a story about a fund manager in the U.S. that 
contacted me and said, hey, I'm looking at this particular company and I think that they're going to pay a big dividend. Could you go talk to the company and find out more information? So I was a broker and I worked for, can't remember which one it was at the time, but so I called up the company and lo and behold, the CEO met me and we sat down and talked for a couple of hours. And he told me a story about how he almost lost the business during the 1997 crisis where the banks basically tried to foreclose on the business and tried to get everything back. But slowly he and his family were able to regain control of the company and buy their debt back from uh, creditors as well as eventually paying off all the banks. So this company has 20% of its balance sheet in cash owned by a man who was the family owner. And basically he told me that story that he almost lost the business to the banks. And then he said, I'll never borrow money from banks again. And then I called my fund manager uh, client and basically said, they're not going to pay a big dividend because of this story. The story is just an important point, And that is that sometimes these types of experiences have a lasting impact. The other thing that I think in the theory of finance, we say that to have excess cash is not a good thing. But the benefit of excess cash is number one, you can negotiate with your suppliers and get lower prices because you have more attractive credit terms for your suppliers as well as your customers. And you can put yourself into a position where you are actually increasing your gross profit margin of your business. So there is value in excess cash there. The second place that there's value in excess cash is if an opportunity comes along, you can move probably faster and more aggressively than your competitors to pick up another company or something like that. So don't just believe what it says in the textbook to say, don't have a lot of excess cash. I think that there are right. reasons why excess cash can be very valuable. I like that. The two things I would say that I've learned and come to get insight into during my almost one decade, next year is one decade here. And the first thing is with families, though, a bit of another perspective. One thing I've gotten a better understanding of being in Asia is that family owned or family run businesses that can create continuity. So rather than they carry us about the next quarterly results, it actually becomes a long-term strategy. And that's what makes the business successful and get it to prevail. And another thing which Andrew mentioned, and he had told me many stories around the Asian financial crisis, is that when you look at many companies in different Asian markets, they like to hold a lot of cash. And I mean, you learn in any finance one-on-one course that you as a company shouldn't sit on cash. You should leverage up and earning as much as you can. But the fact is, if you had a company and you experienced the Asian financial crisis and, you know, the bank came knocking at your door and trying to take the business from you, you want to sit on cash. You don't want to be over leveraged. And the other part is, yes, if you sit on cash, opportunities will arise. And when those opportunities come, you're ready for them and you can capitalize on them. But if you don't have the cash and you cannot get the funding, okay, then you might lose that opportunity. I like that. I, I write about Slack and I don't know if that's the best word to describe it, but the idle cash on the balance sheet or even the idle cash in the portfolio or idle cash in your wallet that gives you choices and options in moments of distress. And I think both as individuals and investors and business owners, that's something we forget about. We want to manage it so tightly. And uh, moments like the pandemic, I think, showed to a lot of people the few months of savings at home can really get you through some tough times. And for businesses, some major corporations were asking the U.S. government for handouts. But anyways, I, I like the way you think about cash. 
I want to ask you about something that's close close to us in our experience. We work with first-generation wealth creators and with wealth inheritors with multi-generational fortunes. And it looks like there's always expectation and preparation, but the actual wealth transfer can be fairly sudden and somebody's overnight almost responsible for a large amount of money. I'm curious about your advice for somebody like that, whether they inherited or created the wealth, what would you recommend they do or not do? So if I was to sit down and talk to someone who had suddenly received a large amount of wealth, my advice for them is to separate creating wealth from growing wealth. We create wealth through our jobs or our businesses. These are like money machines, wealth machines, where they're spitting out cash flow every single month through the profits of a business or through the difference between someone's salary and their monthly spending. This is the creation of wealth. You shouldn't go into the stock market with the goal of creating wealth, which most people do. It's a lot like going to the casino and go, I'm going to get rich. People who go into the stock market thinking that they're going to create their wealth usually are sadly disappointed. So look at the stock market and look at investing in general as the way to grow your wealth. And when you separate the creation of wealth from the growing of wealth, it starts to calm things down when you think about how you're going to grow that wealth. So this is the number one advice that I would give the person that has just come into a substantial amount of money. It's, it's interesting what you say, because I spent an hour with a dear friend on an interview like this, who is a retired family lawyer. And a big part of our conversation was about the 100-year plan. It's so hard to embrace the idea in a world where you have the same-day delivery and instant gratification all around, and you want somebody to sit down and think about 100 years. But in a moment like this, this is the only way, really, to think about it. And I think it's never been harder for people to embrace this idea. Alex, you want to chime in? Yeah, so to add uh, to what Andrew said, I would say don't be an easy-come, easy-go person. You should respect where the wealth comes from. I mean, for example, if you, you're an entrepreneur and you build a business over decades, then you probably have that respect. But sometimes people are lucky and they might find success in just a couple of years of their business. So you still need to respect where it comes from. And if you have that respect for how wealth is created, probably you won't waste it or lose it all. And the second thing to go back to what we talked about before about being responsible, use your money in a way that you think will have positive impact on yourself, on people around you. It might just be invest your money in good businesses and then you're having a good impact. Let it grow. A qu question for both of you, success. In an industry where seemingly almost everything can be quantified, what's your definition of success? My definition of success is to do the activities that I love with the people I want to do it with in the place that I want to do it. I don't think I could ask for anything more. And that's what I have. I've lived in the same place for 20 years in the same apartment. My mother lives with me here and I'm happy to have her with me. And basically I'm working with the people I want to work with and I'm doing the things that I love to do. And I don't think you can ask for more. I think the only other thing that I would add is that what's really exciting at my age is helping other people to achieve the success that I've gotten. And I do that through our Valuation Masterclass and the Valuation Masterclass Bootcamp, 
where we have students from around the world and we're helping them transform their lives. So that to me ultimately is success. Alex? I had a one word answer, happiness. <laughs> I like that. Then on the other hand, you know, exactly what that is or how to get there. It's not that easy to define or quantify, but let's say a few things at least I think to get there. One is to be intellectually challenged by what you do. Another part is financial independence. And I think the last thing, being a person that your friends and your clients, that they feel they can trust and rely on. I like that. Sounds like on the personal side, it's an enjoyable journey, at least for me. And I can relate to what you said. On the client side, I call it quality of sleep. You know, at school, they teach us all kinds of theories how the portfolio should be built. But at the end of the day, you have to remember there's a person behind the portfolio. And if you structured it in a way that doesn't allow them to sleep, it doesn't work. So the quality of sleep, and it can be very different for different clients. And you have to find out what it is for each and every individual and family that we work with. And if they can sleep well, I can sleep well. And that's, that's the goal at the end of it all. Wow. Thank you so much. This was wonderful. I learned a lot. I really appreciate it. So thank you both. Thank you very much. You were listening to Talking Billions. We talk about big ideas, big inspirations, big topics. We take on the hardest subject of all, money. But our conversations lead us to an even bigger question. What it means to live a rich life beyond money. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment and follow, subscribe, rate, and share with friends and family. We rely on word of mouth to promote the show. One click for you means the world to us. Thank you. Until next time, your host, Bogomil Baranowski. The content of this podcast is for general informational purposes only, and so are the opinions of members of Seacard Associates, a registered investment advisor, and guests of the show. This podcast does not constitute a recommendation to buy or sell any specific security or financial instruments or provide investment advice or service. Past performance is not indicative of future results. More information on Seacard Associates is available in its Form ADV disclosure documents available at advisorinfo.sec.gov.